right. Um, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, a podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, uh, get to learn about other cultures and see what's going on in other places all around the world. So my name is Nosa Yari and welcome to another episode. Um, so I've said this a couple of times before, even though the basis of this podcast is like culture, you know, travel experiences, uh, get to, to learn about things. Um, interacting with people from different backgrounds, that might mean different things. So the most common denominator is someone like from a different country, that someone who's not Nigerian, who's not necessarily, um, you know, where I'm from. But sometimes also um, interacting with people from different backgrounds is interacting with people that don't have the same experience as you. So someone who might not be Black or someone who might not be of the same sexual orientation. And the whole idea is to, you know, reach out to people who don't necessarily look like me so we can have like a civil conversation. I can, you know, get to understand where they're coming from. If it's a cultural exchange kind of story, you know, get to understand what their culture is about, break down certain, you know, stereotypes and misconceptions and, you know, building bridges uh, between people of different classes, races, cultures, that kind of thing. And I say all that to to say um, I have a very special guest on today's episode. Um, let me just run down his profile real quick. Um, so he is an openly gay um, British Nigerian pastor. Uh, he's the founder of House of Rainbow. He's an international speaker, author, or poet. He has degrees in law, he has a master's in theology and a postgraduate certificate in pastoral theology. Um, he's a HIV and human rights activist, and he's with me today on the podcast. Welcome, today. How's it going? It's going very well. Thanks for the introduction. And um, I think it's good to know and have a sense of uh, culture class in terms of culture. And I think that you articulated that very well because um, we could actually be from the same country of origin, but also have different cultures um, or different approach to uh, livelihoods and ideologies. So that is actually well put. Um, yeah, I'm J.D. McCauley, and like you said in the introduction, I'm the founding pastor of House of Rainbow, and I'm also a clergy in the Anglican Church of England. Correct, correct. And, you know, we're going to, you know, get into all that, how, you know, being openly gay and being a clergy in the Anglican Church of England, I mean, a church that's really notorious for being conservative, uh, you know, the struggles you face in that and everything. But, um I just want to pinpoint that uh, Reverend GDA is currently on retreat. Can I call it a vacation or just like a retreat right now? <laughs> well, actually, let's say that we're in the process of going into a retreat. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And I, you know, I really appreciate you, you know, you taking out time. I mean, anytime, you know, there's, you're, you're an, an activist, you know, you, you fight for LGBTQ plus rights, you fight for, you know, gay rights and things like that. So um, even on your downtime, you know, I just appreciate you, you know, giving me an audience uh, during this time. Uh, it's but no problem. Most definitely, most definitely. Uh, let, let's go into some of your backstory. So from what I understand and from what I read online, you were born in London, the UK, but you, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in London or did you grow up in Nigeria? Well, I mean, it is a fact. I was born in London and a lot of people actually don't know that, um, but I was raised in Nigeria. I mean, my parents in the 1960s, uh, like many young Nigerians, back then, you know, traveled to England, uh, which was a, a, a former colony of the UK, um, you know, came to England and studied and then obviously went back to Nigeria. So my parents came to England as young 
themselves and they had their children and returned back to Nigeria, you know, um, in those years. So, I mean, I grew up in Nigeria, so my primary and secondary education was in Nigeria. So um, I returned back to England and in my late teens, so um, when I was probably about 17, 18 years old, um, you know, just to continue to live in England. So there was actually uh, no uh, desperate reason to return from Nigeria to the UK when I did. Got it. Got it. And what era? Because Nigeria, you know, when we look at the time, the time scale, like Nigeria was probably a different place for different generations. So you're a little bit older than me. What Nigeria did you grow up in? Is it the 70s Nigeria? The 80s Nigeria? Listen, I'm actually going to be 55 years old, um, you know, November this year. Um, I think that Nigeria, when I grew up in Nigeria, what I remember mostly was the 70s. Um, I remember things like Yakubu Gowon coup, uh, which was early 1970s, and of course the 1980s uh, politics and so on and so forth. I mean, I I remember that when I was in Nigeria, when I was in Nigeria as a youngster, I remember that Fela Kuti's mom was still alive, <laughs> you know, things like that. So um, there are so many struggles that I remember in Nigeria. But obviously, I mean, that time Nigeria wasn't all gloom and doom. Um, you know, we. we lived relatively a good life because my parents were working class. And, um, and I also remember um, Nigeria was very peaceful when I was growing up, as far as I'm concerned. But it's not to say that there weren't coups and, and uh, political problems. I mean, of course, as a child, um, we were protected from all of those things. So um, we didn't know any wiser. But um, in terms of schools, I mean, um, my parents moved around with their job. And we had several primary schools. And I remember mainly my secondary school was at Maryland Comprehensive, where, um, you know, I did my secondary education. Oh, so you lived in Lagos? Yeah, yeah, practically in Lagos. You know, we moved around Lagos. And I think when my father was obviously, when he finally bought his land and property uh, in Ojudu, Ojudu, not too far from Ikeja, was a very rural area there. But now Ujudu is a big city in its own. So, and that was actually in the mid '80s or early '80s. Yeah. So okay. So, like- okay. So, when you were 17, 18, you moved back to the UK. Have you been back ever since? And when I say back, like, <laughs> have you have you been back to live, like, maybe for a few years, then go back to the UK, or you've just been visiting since then? I mean, initially, I mean, I was visiting um, Nigeria. Um, I, I think I started to visit Nigeria around about 1996. Um, so, and I visited quite often and I really loved my visits. So uh, it got to a point where I actually increased my visit to Nigeria up to about maybe three to five times a year. I'll come to Nigeria. Mm, um, wow. I, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, well, it's not because I have the money. I think there were times where I started to develop, uh, projects in Nigeria. So it was quite interesting for me to come back to Nigeria. So. I mean, in that time, especially between uh, 1996 and 2008, uh, my frequency to Nigeria was actually quite a lot. Um, and, um, and of course, I mean, in 2006 was when I decided to move uh, back from England to live in Nigeria. And, and of course, that also came with a, a deep desire uh, for me to start my organization, House of Rainbow. And, um, and, you know, so that people understand, I mean, House of Rainbow uh, is a Christian-based, uh, Christian faith-based uh, uh, organization or community 
that supports lesbians, gay, bisexual, transgender, Christians uh, on the journey of reconciling faith and sexuality, and also to create a safe spaces because the conversation around sexuality and faith in Nigeria was very, very different. Um, but I, I, I didn't just start it overnight. Um, I started to have conversations uh, about faith and sexuality around about 96, 98. Wait, because, about, uh, uh, let, me, let me touch on that a little bit. So yeah. you started to have conversations about sexuality in 96, uh, that, but growing up, were you brought up in like, because now you like a, are a clergy in the Anglican Church of England, were your parents Anglican? Were you brought up in a Christian household growing up? Um, I was born in, I was literally born into a Christian household. Um, and obviously, I remembered as a child that my parents were ministers. Um, particularly my dad. Um, I've always remembered my dad to be a minister of the church. Um, but of course, I mean, my parents, my dad was raised um, in the Methodist background. Uh, I'm not quite sure about my mother, but I knew that my grandmother was Jehovah Witness. So, but I, I do know that my mother was probably quite rebellious when she was young. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that she followed the Jehovah Witness uh, pathway. But, but by the time my mother died, of course, I mean, she actually Catholic. So, oh, wow. So you experienced these different denominations, Jehovah Witness, Methodist, oh, Anglican, I, Catholic, like... I, I'm, I'm not, it's not... I haven't even finished. I mean, then my, my, my dad was also a celestial church leader uh, for many years. So uh, that was actually the, the African spirituality church through the celestial church of Christ was actually, I can describe as my main Christian background. Because the Celestial Church of Christ provided me with another foundation around my Christianity, about my expression, about the tradition of worship and praise and prayers that I still enjoy up to today and, and value uh, a lot of that up there. So and the centeredness with spirituality is very much rooted in the culture of the Celestial Church of Christ or, or the Aladura kind of a, a genre of Christianity. I mean, I came to Mechanism uh, uh, about ten years ago. Um, uh, I, I, well, actually, as a as, as a clergy, ten years ago. But um, my my pathway with Anglicanism actually started in 1997 when I met a friend um, who's also gay and a clergy in the church, and then he introduced me to the Anglican Church. And this and was while you were living in London in the mid 90s. Yes, yes. Whilst I was in England. Um, so for me, I think that the, 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 the journey of faith and sexuality is somewhere along the way. I mean, um, the best way for me to describe it is that, you know, I was very rooted in my Christian upbringing. But of course, there are questions when it comes to uh, issues around my same-sex attraction and what does the Bible say and how did I understand it? How is it understood? How did people interpret all of those to me and with me? Um, but having said that, you know, I mean, I've always been a Christian as far as I can recall. Got it. Got it. And this might not be a fair question. So a lot of people, when they, they interview uh, like gay people, they ask like, you know, what, when, when was the first time you, re- you realized uh, you were gay? And that, that can be like a tricky question because when do straight people realize they're straight? 
you know. So I guess to be quite honest, I mean, we're we're kind of used to it, and and I think that you know the the biggest joke is in your answer that we asked. So when did you know the straight people? When did you know that you're straight? Yeah, and I, I, that, and I guess I wanted I wanted to ask. I say that because I wanted to ask. Cause <laughs> mo- most times, most times you might not realize it, but there might be like an experience when you were very little, that maybe you were doing an activity or you were gravitating towards the same sex and you just saw that your parents or your uncle or someone in the street like kind of like had like a moment where, you know, they chastised you for doing something. Did you have any of that growing up? Do you kind of remember how old you were? Um, There are many experiences and I'm sure that, you know, anyone listening that is gay or lesbian or even bisexual um, might recognize some of the patterns. And I think that for me personally, um, I didn't know what was be, what is being gay or even the vocabulary or the terminology homosexual. I didn't know all of it. But I knew very well that somewhere around about age five and seven, I already have been displaying uh, an expression of who I am. And I think that sometimes it comes even in childhood play. I mean, Childhood play is very innocent. You know, when we're playing doctor and nurse or we're playing mommy and daddy, you know, some of the role that gay people gravitate towards is often of the softer gender, uh, especially when you're looking at male and female. But and it, it's not always uh, prescriptive because there are some gay people who do not um, feel that they fit into any particular gender role. And that is why we have non-binary, because sometimes it really doesn't matter. And I think that, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to look at it just negatively. I also want to look at it positively as much as I can. You know, because we're raised in a heteronormative society, it is okay for heterosexual children to grow up in what they believe is their norm. But for same gender loving children, it's very difficult because we're not raised, you know, Sammy, in a homonormative society. We so any kind of display of same sex attraction play, whether by error or by default, Sammy, you often get chastised. So if I came home at five years old and I tell my parents that I want James to be my husband or to be my boyfriend, immediately I will be chastised. For no reason. And I think that is part of the problem when you're raised in a heteronormative society. So heterosexuals don't even have to question. If a boy child kisses a girl child, you know, everybody will celebrate and laugh. Oh, ah, you know, oh, James is going to love Tina and Mama Tina. My child is going to marry your child. But, you know, God forbid that James, you know, even kiss John innocently. They will be saying, no, don't do that, it's wrong. And that is where the problem comes. That is where the homophobia is developed, the internalized homophobia. Mm-hmm. But I think that people need to be careful. I'm not asking us to encourage any kind of sexuality between children. But when you are raising children, you have to be mindful of how we respond to children's innocence around many issues, especially sexuality. Yeah, and I mean, Nigeria is such a unique uh, society because generally the world, uh, at least, uh, especially given the time you were growing up in the 70s and 80s, were not really open to, you know, gay relationship and we didn't have a lot of open people. But Nigeria is like a different animal on its own because you have these societal norms of heterosexuality, but you also have the religious angle. Like when you were growing up, your your dad was a pastor, uh, your mom later became a Catholic, your grandmother was Jehovah's Witness. Did you have siblings and did you notice your parents treating you 
different from the way they were treating your siblings, given you know some of the characteristics you are displaying uh, between five and seven? Uh, before I talk about parents and siblings, let me just say that I don't believe that Nigeria uh, sunk into uh, dark places. I, I think that Nigeria and Nigerians are fully aware that there are people with different sexual orientations. There are people... Oh, right, right now it's more common. Yeah, I mean, it's not just about the commonality. I mean, let us be honest. If we ask our parents and grandparents if they knew someone that displayed uh, sexual orientation differently, all of them knew. I mean, I was raised in Nigeria. I mean, let's forget for one second that I was born in London. I was probably about two or three years old when I went back to Nigeria with my parents. So how did I then become gay in Nigeria if people think that it's a foreign ideology? We know that there is enough empirical research, there's enough history you know, on human sexuality. We know that Christianity and colonialism came to Nigeria, you know, Sammy, to disrupt and to, uh, you know, you know, you, you know, interrupt the flow of human sexuality as is best understood in our cultures. So, and, and I think that, you know, for me, it is important that people understand that homosexuality is not foreign to Nigeria. You know, Sammy, it is the idea of homophobia or the idea that removes homosexuality is in itself foreign to the cultures of Nigeria. And this is some of the things that I always said, you know, as an activist, as an individual. So I didn't just arrive. My ancestors, who are also same gender loving, lived in Nigeria. Um, but unfortunately, there was a time that they had to conceal their relationship because it was uh, publicly acceptable. We're seeing the worst of homophobia in Nigeria today. And that is why we need to out against the injustices that we see. Now, the question about my, 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 my family and my siblings, um, I don't think that my, 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 my siblings were treated differently by my parents. We were all treated the same. Um, but me growing up, I've always had an appearance of being effeminate. I was very soft. Um, and um, I think that the only incident that I can recall as a child around my sexuality was with my grandmother on my mother's side and she was Jehovah's Witness anyway. Um, in being very effeminate, I remember she approached me one day, um, you know, as I stood there and she just clenched her fist and punched me in the chest and said, you know, stand like a boy. No, no, no child of mine would be like a sissy. I didn't even know what a sissy is. I didn't, you know, all of these phrases that we throw at children, you know, at young people, are totally unnecessary. I didn't know what it is. And I just remember that, you know, she punched me and I was in pain. I ran to my mother. I reported grandma to my mother and my mother just hugged me and said, don't worry, leave grandma alone. That was all, you know, Sammy. And, you know, sometimes even parents don't help. Um, and I think that if you look at films like Moonlight, for example, the movie, you know, yeah, the, the, the movie, I mean, there was the young boy was being abused, being called faggot or homosexual. It was when he came home asking his parents, what is a faggot? That was when he knew that these are derogatory words against gay people. And even at that age, he didn't even know that he was gay. You understand me? And I think that the fact that we don't have the, the, the normalcy of, expression of same-sex relationship growing up, it means that when it then hits us, particularly at puberty, we go into hiding because we don't know how people are going to react. We don't know how our parents are going to react. 
Got it. You know. Got it. And and you know, I certainly agree with the fact that you know um, some people try to tag being gay as you know what the colonialists or some colonialists brought to Africa, but that's not necessarily the case. Because like you said, there's evidence that in history, as far back as even biblical times, where we had situations of like same-sex relationship, but maybe it wasn't just as pronounced, or maybe we didn't have the word openly gay or something per se. Uh, back then. A lot of Nigerians, what I've also found found out about Nigerians, and this is not just uh, regarding homosexuality, in general, Nigerians can be very hypocritical people. Like They live kind of like for the society. The average Nigerian lives for prestige and honor in the society. So they have to do everything right. They have to get the right education. They have to get married at the right time, get married to the right person, live beyond their means, even if they can afford it, just so the society can look at them and Except it's very difficult for a lot of Nigerians to like live on their own terms. That's why when you had um, you know characters like Charlie Boy in the '90s and other people like who just decided to live on their own terms, they were termed you know rebellious or even Fela Kuti at some point you know, was termed like a troublemaker. You know just because he's living his own truth and trying to you know make the society kind of like work for him. But you know it's unfortunate um, in that regard. What what the country is going through. You know, we don't talk about the real things. We just keep everything surface level. Uh, and that translates, you know, coming back to homosexuality, that translates to the kind of relationship which we marry. Because currently in Nigeria, there are a lot of secretly gay people who are married to women and men alike, like a gay woman who's married to a man or a gay man who's married to a woman, just to maintain that societal, you know, acceptance. I haven't heard of a story. I don't know how true this is, but I was listening to a podcast and a guy was saying one of his gay friends came out to his uh, his parents and his parents, his dad and mom, you know, they were all sitting in the living room and they were saying, okay, you know what? I've had my suspicion since you were a teenager you were, that you were gay. Fine, you've come out to me, you're gay, but you know what? We're still going to get your wife. You're still going to get married. You, you can do whatever you want to do. Do you know my friend engineer this? Do you know my other friend, doctor this? They are both gay, but they've been married for 20 years. You can be like them. That you, do, you know, So encouraging their child to like live a life from the onset, that kind of yeah. thing. I, 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 think, I think the challenge with that is that, you know, you're encouraging people to live a life. Uh, no, I mean, there are a couple of authors that have written, quite frank, you know, uh, stories about the uh, Walking with Shadows by Libya, you know, chronicled the stories of um, gay men and, and women who actually marry, you know, uh, the opposite sex in order to maintain faith in the society. Um, and um, Frank Edozian, I'm just trying to remember the title of his book, um, you know, uh, he also wrote, quite frank, um, about the number of people who had married, you know, uh, who had got into heterosexual marriage. Now, I mean, I also entered into a heterosexual marriage before I came out as gay. And I can tell you right now, it's deeply unfortunate and it's also deeply uncomfortable. Now, I did not enter into this relationship, you know, to save face with my own family or anything at all. But I thought I was doing the right thing by my culture. I thought I was doing the right thing by my religious upbringing as well. Because, I mean, I'm a deeply spiritual person. I prayed to God, you know, to take away my homosexuality because I didn't want to be gay. So when I met the woman that became my wife, I strongly believe that God has cured me. And it was a miracle that I have a girlfriend, so I cannot be gay. I truly and 
honestly believe that. But we have more information. We are in 2020, the 21st century, where we have more information about human sexuality such that if you are gay, there is no need for you to enter into a heterosexual relation. My opinion is that when you do that, everyone is going to get hurt. Now, I mean, I can understand if they enter it for whatever reasons, but if everybody that is involved in that arrangement knows that you're gay and you're entering, including the wife or the husband, whatever the case may be, know that they are marrying a gay or lesbian person, then let's get real. Because there are so many sad stories behind all of this. Where do I begin? You know, as an openly gay pastor, I know many people who are gay that are in relationship with women because they didn't have a choice, but Yet, they are behind their wives having relationship with other men. They are extremely unhappy. Many of them are having mental and psychological breakdown because they cannot cope. And it's often the same as well for lesbian women as well. Because, you know, sometimes you get into a relationship, you become absolutely intolerant because your mind is not there, your heart is not there, your body is not there. I mean, what kind of alien culture are we creating for ourselves if we're forced into this relationship? Let me tell you one thing, right? This is not just a Nigerian thing. It's actually across the world, particularly in the global south. You know, it's the same as well in the Asian culture like Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, so on. So it's not just Nigeria or Africans alone. These are problem problem areas for many same gender individuals. And a lot of the cases that I support and, and deal with in the UK, for example, or in Europe and America, is often to support uh, lesbians and gays who, who have fled their country and want to live their life peacefully. And sometimes that could mean losing the relationship with your family back home, whether it be Nigeria or Uganda or Malawi. So, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, um, the, the conversation is out there. There are many people who do not feel that they've got the choice, but they just have to live by the rules of their family and their parents. It's very sad, but the repercussions and the consequences are often very ugly. Got it. Got it. What, what was that experience for like you, like living your truth and coming out to your loved ones that, hey, do you know what? I don't think I can live in a lie anymore this is who i it am was, let me tell you honestly it, it was it was very difficult and and like i said there are consequences as well um and i, and I put it into two formats uh, when i came out to, to my ex-wife and when i my family got to know so those two angles let's go with that now when i came out to my ex-wife um you know we had a seven-year relationship all together did you the guys last... were you guys married in nigeria or london we were married in england we're both nigerian you know, we were both born in england and well, i was raised in nigeria she was raised here but we're very caught serious when you see us you it was when you see me, myself and my ex wife you wouldn't even know that we were born in england because we're very cultured you know we're so involved with the Nigerian community. There is no community event or community program that you not see us there. We go there as a couple. We wear all the uh, match clothes and everything. From the moment we were dating, we were always together. Seriously, people knew me and my wife, Jerusalem, for a long time. We're very cultured, very disciplined people. And that is why I always say parents, that the fact that your child is gay or less doesn't mean that they're falling out of culture or respect for their society, even Nigeria. It is not the case. It is just that we are different. We're born different. You know, by the grace of God, we're born gay and lesbians. That is the only difference. We didn't stop being Nigerian. We didn't stop being the loving child of God. We didn't stop being your children as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, when I, when I came out to my ex, wife um you know i knew i was gay like before i got into a relationship with her but throughout my relationship with her i tried to fight back my same-sex attraction but it was there i was able to suppress as far as i can go but when our relationship then became very intense 
emotionally, psychologically, physically, mentally. That was when I was then having problems. You understand me? So the last three years of our relationship was when we then got married. Now, honestly speaking, I remember my wedding day. I think I was so afraid on that day that I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw up. Somebody's going to find out how I really felt and so on. And, so on. and I didn't get the chance, you know, to escape. So it meant I went along with it. Nobody forced me. They didn't put a gun to my head. And the truth is that I love this woman as well. But we were what I would describe as mixed sexual orientation. Seriously, when a man and a woman are both heterosexual and they love each other, they are always deaf other. The mechanics for them work from the from the top of their head to the sole of their but when it comes to same gender loving people and you match them with a heterosexual problem, it's going to be problematic at some point. Somebody in that relationship is is is, is um, faking it until you make it kind of situation. So when I came out to my ex-wife, it was actually in the last year of our relationship. I was really having a meltdown, okay, um, because of many reasons. I mean, I still have friends that are gay. I, 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 you know, I've seen how they're flourishing and how they're doing well. And here I am, I'm stuck in this relationship. I mean, I had friends that are gay before I got married well. Oh, so you weren't living a double life during the seven years while no. you guys were together? No, 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 no. I mean, for me, it was important for me to keep my marriage vows. But at the same time, I was definitely, you know, off my head in terms of how I was feeling in that moment. You understand? You know, when, I, when, when I'm at home, I don't want to be at home. You know, when I'm with my wife, I don't want to be with her. I just want to be somewhere else. Do you understand? And it's also the time that I was studying and also working. So I would I would spend as much time as I can at work and I spend as much time you know, at the university, in the library, as much, anything, anywhere else but home. I can put a so, strain on a marriage, I can imagine. It certainly does. I mean, I know people, for example, in Nigeria, you know, that are gay people, for example, uh, and I'll give you, a, 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 this is actually a true story. Someone who is gay got married to a woman and they live in the east part of Nigeria, okay? And then when he was complaining to me, about the marriage to me or then he's not getting on well uh, because he couldn't have you know um, it, well he couldn't have a good romantic relationship with her and then he moved from the east to Lagos in order to avoid his marriage seriously so I mean now that he's in Lagos you know he, he, the last thing he said to me is that he's planning to leave the country but because he's a working class and he has got a lot uh, of, of his own money he has set up the wife so that she doesn't have anything to want for but he's planning to leave the country so that he can go and find himself now must it be to that length? And I know that there are a lot of women, unfortunately, in Nigeria who are caught up in these marriages, but because other areas of their life, like the financial security, the home security, as they met, or perhaps already have children together, they think that, okay, that's okay. I don't think that women should settle for a gay man or a man that is struggling with their sexual orientation. I think it's unfair for those women, and it's unfair for families and parents force women to settle. You know, that's also something that you just touched a nerve there because some people, you know, eventually in the course of the relationship, they do find out that their partners are gay. But like you said, just because of, you know, oh, they say, you know, if I leave this marriage, what, what will become of me financially? What will become of me, you know, society-wise? So let me just try to talk to my partner. You know, let's, let's, let's keep it, maintain it. You do what you do, but let's still legally remain married. Did you face that with your family? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I, th I think that the biggest problem with uh, separation and divorce uh, of any kind, and most most extensively when the husband or the wife turns out to be gay or lesbian, you know, 
Let me take the let me let me say, take the the woman who found out that her husband is gay. I mean, this woman would question herself: Is she not beautiful enough? Is she not good enough? Do you understand me? And sometimes some women might know that their husband to be is gay, but they don't want to question it. They don't want to argue over it. They, they just ignore it. You know. I mean, I I don't want to blame my ex-wife, but I think that there are times that I believe that she knew that I was gay, but. Because we we were both in denial anyway. You know, if she had brought it up, I would have denied it. Seriously. But we all kept quiet. And then unfortunately, we got married. And then, you know, things went pear-shaped. And, you know, in a country like Nigeria, you know, people don't get even second chance. That is why if a man comes out as gay in a relationship from a marriage in Nigeria, then life is completely doomed. And it's not just at home. If they have a good job, for example, or any job, they'll be fired immediately. If they're involved in their church or in their mosque, you know, they'll be excommunicated. These are the yeah, that, that's an interesting that point. Nigerians, about. you know, especially Nigerians living abroad, like to talk about racism a lot of times, but we fail to recognize the discrimination that's going on in our country, you know, to a certain extent, particularly, you know, classism, you know, the way people treat their housemates and things like that, the way um, the law doesn't necessarily protect people with disabilities, the way, you know, organizations still discriminate against. And there's even like a jail term associated with, you know, uh, homophobic acts in court, uh, which is, I think, up to 14 years imprisonment at, at the very extreme. Well, I mean, let, let me change that one because, I mean, your audience might, might think that you're right. It's not actually homophobic acts. Homophobic acts is different from homosexual acts. Uh, you know, homophobic acts is those uh, homosexual acts, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, people that Oh, yeah, people believe that the law actually encourages homophobic acts. So unfortunately in Nigeria today, if somebody found out that I'm gay and they slap my face and we go to the police station to report the assault, the moment they say that they slap GD because he's gay, they will be, you know, held the hero and I will be arrested, you know. Uh, for that. And this is where it, it, it's, it's gone really bad. How can we justify a gay man being beaten black and blue, you understand me, being blackmailed, being kidnapped, to some extent some of them are also being raped, and then you can justify that under the law in Nigeria and then get the gay person arrested again. It's, it's gone on too much. I mean, recently, I mean, homophobic people have killed gay people in Nigeria, justifying the fact that it is against the law of the country and it's also against God's law. But somebody is dead. I mean, we, we need to think about this. We need to think about it. You know, homosexual people are Nigerians too. And we do not deserve to be treated as poorly as we are seen in recent days. It is despicable that gay people have to be watching their back every single day that they step out of the house. And I've said this many times, because a man is effeminate does not mean that he's gay. There are heterosexual men that are effeminate, for goodness sake. There are women that are masculine who are not lesbian. This is nature in itself. This is how nature distributes itself. God is a God of diversity. God did not create all women to be feminine. God did not create all women to have the talent to cook. Do you understand me? Or the gift of cooking good food. You know, if you want good food, then go and look for a chef. Seriously. And this is the problem we have in Nigeria. And unfortunately, the government and religious leaders are making lives worse for the gay community. And this is where I come in quite on. I mean, I'm I'm very different, you know. As a religious leader, as a Christian, you know, I believe that God loves the gay people. I believe that God adores gay people. We are God's creation. When people start to say, eh, God made Adam and from what perspective are you looking at it if not that your mind is debased around sex? Because they're always looking at the anatomy. Because a man has a penis and a woman has a vagina, 
doesn't mean that that is what God made it for. Seriously, we need to look deeply into God's creativity. God is a, a, crea- a creator with misery that we can't even unravel in this lifetime. So when we ask the question or, or, we, or, we, or we promote the idea that God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve, then you have to ask yourself the question, where did Steve come from if God did not make Steve as well? So there is a fundamental problem behind the homophobia that is also uh, definitely trickled into what I now call religious homophobia. There is clearly religious homophobia. And I believe, yeah, I believe that God is calling people like myself, you know, to have this lived experience. I mean, so I can, can certainly agree, you know, um, from what the little I understand about the Bible, or, you know, I'm not a pastor or anything, uh, is that, you know, God loves everyone uh, equally and God doesn't discriminate the way uh, humans do. That's why we kind of like have that popular phrase back home, say, uh, thank God man is not God, or if God be man, you know, uh, if man be God, you know, that kind of thing. And it's interesting because, you know, recently in the, in the recent years, I personally have tried my best to unlearn a lot of things I was taught um, religiously while growing up. So, um, you know, where we're from, the way Christianity is practiced is kind of like really, it can get really rigid and dogmatic for the most part. So they choose to interpret, you know, a part of the Bible. And, you know, just growing up, I've had to, you know, unlearn a lot of things because the way some Christians, I won't say all Christians or many Christians interpret the Bible, they tend to, you know, pick out some things that favor them or their agenda and leave out some certain things. So I personally, like not a lot of people where we come from like actually see Christianity for what it is, like a relationship between you and God and a relationship between you and your fellow man. So if God is love, then how do you translate that love to other people in the society? And just bringing that back to kind of like what we're talking about, what made you want to go into the Anglican, you know, maybe I'll say faith or the Anglican community and not just going there, like having the, the vision to become clergy, knowing how conservative, you know, that whole institution is with the Anglican Church of England. Did you know what you were getting into or you just had a conviction uh, in that particular community that you wanted to cause a certain change or you wanted to build up your relationship between you and God? Like, What, what made you want to become an Anglican? I mean, I, my, 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 my intention to become an Anglican, um, uh, I can say that it went back to around about 1997 uh, when I was first introduced to the Anglican Church. Um, I didn't stay because in 1997, I understood where the Anglican Church stood even around the ordination of women, um, around the uh, conversations around human sexuality. And I remember telling my friend that I don't think that I, you know, survive in the Anglican Church. Now, let's fast forward um, from 1997 to 2003. In 2003, um, Jean Robinson, uh, uh, yeah, Jean Robinson in New Hampshire, uh, an openly gay man was ordained as the Bishop of New Hampshire. And the Nigerian church made a big fuss about it, that, you know, a gay person cannot become a bishop. It's just so, it's impossible. And then, and I think they also made a lot of statements that, you know, uh, you know, there are no homosexuals in Nigeria. And of course, by this time, you know, my, my friends and our Anglican friends, you know, they, they said to me, do you hear what the Archbishop of Nigeria said that there are no homosexuals in Nigeria. I said, of course, I'm Nigerian and I'm gay. So I remember, you know, that I started to have a lot more conversations and start to understand some of the issues. But to be quite honest, I didn't feel at that point in time that there was any reason for me to become more involved with the Anglican Church, apart from me visiting for one service or the other. Now, of course, in the same year, 
um, I joined the Metropolitan Community Church. I served with the Metropolitan Community Church. I did my training in inclusive theology uh, in at the Pacific School of Religion in uh, California. And um, in 2005, I completed my training, returned back to London. And then um, in 2006, I decided to start House of Rainbow as a community for Christians. Now, of course, I kept in touch with my Anglican friends so that when I'm in England or when I'm in town, you know, I will go to church, I'll go to mass. And that was about it. But of course, um, in the time that I was with the Metropolitan Community Church and doing the work of House of Rainbow in Nigeria, you know, I have developed so well on my understanding of human sexuality, inclusive theology, that I felt ready. So I was already very open, you know, uh, about my understanding of human sexuality. It was also around the same time that my friends in the Anglican Church were also having conversations with me about how the church is changing, how the issues around human sexuality is moving forward. Forward, you know, certainly. And I want to be a minister. I don't want to be a gay pastor. I've never wanted to be a gay pastor. I want to be a minister to all people. So, and I remember, you know, my mentors between 2007 and 2009, you know, we had many conversations about the direction of my ministry. And I was actually encouraged, you know, to think about expanding my ministry as a minister of all people within the Anglican Church. And you know, um, one of my godchildren is Anglican, you know, the parents are Anglican. So I said, well, why not? So when I presented myself for training in the Anglican church, it was much easier because I've already learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about sexual minorities, um, you know, the bishop that put me forward, the ministers that put me forward, you know, felt convinced that God is calling me. And, you know, I went through the process like everybody else. So I have to go through the challenge of meeting all the criteria. Did, did you make your sexual orientation to known to... Uh... Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my sexuality was known. I mean, when I was doing the work in House of Rainbow in Nigeria, I mean, you can't hide your sexuality when you're open in Nigeria. You know that you will be on the front line with everything. Um, in Nigeria, you know, my work even went on the line of just for gay people in the church. So, I mean, I found myself in front of the uh, senators in Aso Rock, you know, you know, appealing and debating on the inclusion of LGBT. I was even appealing to them in 2007 not to pass the anti-gay bill to law. And, you know, this is the extent of my work. So none of those things were a secret or a cover-up when I came along um, to continue or be part of the journey in the Anglican Church. So everything was well documented, you know. I, I didn't come to the Anglican ministry under the uh, shadow of of clouds or darkness. No, very transparent and very open. These are conversations that I had with the bishops and all the directors of ordinance and so on. And I was approved. Um, you, you talked you know, about you know, studying inclusive theology, you know, having your training and understanding about the Anglican Church before you joined. How important do you think is training in combating discrimination in the church? Because I can imagine, I don't know, you know, in theology school, what is being taught or what was being taught. Maybe pastors are not necessarily taught sensitivity training, you know, taught about. Maybe they just see scriptures and the word a certain way. That's why they don't know how to interact with their members of your congregation who might be LGBT or things like that. Do you think it's necessary for the system to kind of have such inclusive training in order to train their, their clergymen, even right from the start at the beginning of their pastoral career, so that they'll know that, oh, this is what the society looks like? Yeah. I mean, I 
I, I, I hear you and I understand. Um, you know, for me, I, I've always wanted to be a pastor when I was 13 years old. And it was also around the same time that I discovered scriptures that talk about, you know, if a man have sex with another man, has with a woman, it is an abomination and they shall be put to death. Now, just imagine that text for a 13-year-old who is gay or have same-sex feelings. It's terrifying, yes. You know, I mean, I've always said that, you know, somebody should put a key on the Bible and take it away from children. And that is why common sense says that children should have children's Bible. Seriously. I mean, it's not just the verse on homosexuality, but other verses as well. The Bible teaches, you know, to kill. Kill, kill, kill. It's an abomination. Kill them. You know, you understand me? But let me come back to um, the inclusive theology. For me, I think that um, my background in education is law. And I think that I fell into that area of training because we have parents that have determined that you, you're going to be a lawyer, you, you're going to be an engineer. And then we start pursuing that career, you know, to please our parents. If my parents were a lot, as far as I'm concerned, even though my parents were, were, my dad in particular was a minister, I think that my dad should have known at age 13 to have sent me to Bible college or theological school right from the beginning, honestly. So I was very interested in theology even when I was studying law. So after I finished my law degree and I worked for the Crown Prosecution Service in the UK for 12 years or more, I decided to go and study theology. And I studied theology at my father's university in Nigeria. I studied under my father. My father was when one of my lecturers. When you say your father's university, did so your I father went own a university or worked in a university? Yeah, my father owned a university. He's the founder of uh, United Bible University in Nigeria. You know, of course, he's, he's a big guy in Nigeria. So, I mean, one of the things is this, right? Okay, so I studied theology at his university, right? My father's theological curriculum is very, uh, it focuses on theology per se. Jerusalem, it is, it is a good curriculum if you want to study theology, you want to understand who God is, and so on. It doesn't prepare you for the practicality of ministry itself. It gives you the basic understanding to of To be honest, that seems Bible like a general problem in God. education, because even in secular okay. education, they teach you one thing in school, but that doesn't necessarily prepare you for how the world is structured. Mm. You. Thank you. And that goes back to the conversation we had earlier on about normativity. You know, when something is being normalized in society, you know, people don't even think twice when they act on it. You understand? And, and I think that for me, as a queer person, that is developing and struggling. I went through theology school. See, when I came out of theological school, and even though I was ordained primarily by my father, you understand me, I had many questions to ask because those questions around who am I? Why do I have all these feelings of same sex? Even though I've been through marriage, I've come out of marriage, you understand me? And even when I went to theological school with my father, I still didn't address the issue of my separation and divorce from my ex-wife. So I didn't really have the practical, you understand me, uh, explanation. I didn't have the practical exposition about life, self. And when you talk, when you ask the question about how do they train theologians, I think that many theological colleges miss out on the opportunity to train the clergy in different areas of life skills. And that includes things like um, inclusion and diversity and equality. That includes things like women's rights, children's rights. You know what I mean? We have pastors that don't understand, understand child yeah. abuse, pastors that don't understand what I mean, most people, most people, you know, stay on the Serious. on the side that you know God is uh, never changing, and even took a while for some churches to get hip to the idea of social media. A lot of people were saying, you know, the computers of the devil, you know, right? The social media is kind of like evil, and that's just something on the base, like 
something small, how much more things like uh, LGBTQ relations? This, this, this is the part of the mistake we make in, 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 in church or in religious communities. But let me put it this way to you and to people that are, are listening. Um, would you go to a doctor that qualified 20 years ago and I've never once in the last year renewed their medical training? So why then do we go to a pastor that doesn't learn, that doesn't learn that there is a shift in theology, there is there's a shift. God doesn't change, but we know that our knowledge changes. Even the Bible asks us, Proverbs 4 verse 5, it says, get understanding, get wisdom. For me, that is an indication that we need to do research. When a pastor is faced with some realities, the, 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 the last thing they should be doing is call it demonic spirit. No. It is not demon. They call it demonic spirit because they don't have the no, knowledge. That's, they don't that's, have the that's one thing. There's it. a really popular Leviticus so, verse. I think it's Leviticus 18 that a lot of people cling on to. That what what do you do when people actually talk to you with scriptural backing? A pastor is saying, "Look, this is the part in the Bible where it says we shouldn't be gay." What's your response to that? I, I think I think my response is always that chapter and verse is cannot solve the problem. Every single uh, one, when it comes to many Christians, not just theologians, is always chapter and verse. Seriously. If you bite your fingers now, somebody will say there is a chapter and verse that forbids you from biting your fingers. Seriously. We we can't rely on chapter and verse. What I say is that Leviticus, yeah, Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 and Leviticus 20 verse 13. There are two verses that says that if a man has sexual relations with another man, it is an abomination and they shall be put to death. Right? That is not the only chapter in the Bible that are quoted against homosexuality. But I will say that those two chapters alone does not does not um, condemn homosexuality. They don't. In fact, let me put it to you plainly, and people might disagree with. There is nowhere in the Bible that condemns homosexuality. But the interpretation of those who interpret the scriptures is the one that is leading to the condemnation of homosexuality. The same Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1 to 3, if people will read it carefully, you know, the Bible says that God spoke to Moses to speak to the Israelites. And he said something around about, you know, do not do as the people of Egypt do where I'm bringing you from. And do not do as the people of Canaan for which I am taking you to do. Do this. Now, the Old Testament scriptures was given to the Israelites in particular at the time that we have, a, there was pre-scientific period. The Israelites were coming out of Egypt, so they needed to procreate. So any kind of sexual relationship that does not procreate in that Time for the Israelites is considered an abomination. And let's ask ourselves many questions. There are many other abominations that we do not adhere to today. Many of us shave our beards. It is an abomination to shave your beard. It's an abomination uh, to not be a virgin at the time that you're getting married. It is an abomination to eat, you know, certain food. It is an abomination. So you need to ask yourself the question, what is an abomination? You know, I don't believe that loving same-sex relations is an abomination. I don't believe that Leviticus 2 chapters and verse 2, two verses in the Bible does not determine the condemnation of same-gender loving individuals. It doesn't at all. And recently... In fact, not even recent. Well, recently and for a long time, we have been debating that the word homosexual was inserted wrongly in the Bible in 1946. In, correct, 1946. The Revised Standard Version was the one that changed some of the words or inserted the word homosexual in the Bible. And when you read First Corinthians chapter six, verse one, chapter six, nine to ten, that is often used to condemn homosexuals. The word homosexual was standing there alongside with gossipers, drunkards, robbers. How does that, how do you marry that? How do you understand that? 
How does a homosexual, you know, equate with a thief today? I mean, look, I mean, let's take Nigeria, for example. If they were to prosecute all the corrupt politicians today, do you think that if they say that they should all kill them because they're all in the same language homosexual, do you think that would be It's pretty interesting what you, what you say about interpretation because no. people often forget that the modern Bible, the way it's put together, was put together by King James. And, you know, the, I think there was like a, a conference. No, no, let's, let's, let's not make that mistake. Yeah, there is a King's Bible that we all believe that came out, even out of a whole level of corruption itself. But the Bible as well, at least from the 14th century, Jerusalem or 15th century, has been translated over and over and over again. There are diverse translations of the scripts. But I mean, for me, if I'm going to have a conversation with another theologian on the issues of human sexuality, I would have at least expect that they will have read several versions of the scriptures and they will have also, you know, read or at least be in kind of academic persuasion with other scholarly right because i no longer i no longer have this conversation with people that quote chapter and verse you need to have a grounding in your theological exposition for you to understand what you're debating what you're talking about because too often when i sit down with people i can guarantee you that at the end of one hour they will begin to change their mind and have a better understanding. But to be quite honest, I'm very impatient about that because my focus is to focus on the well-being, pastoral care of sexual minorities. Let me tell you one thing, right? Honestly, my desire is for gay and lesbian Christians to make heaven. You know, we want to be on that pathway towards salvation and redemption. The very thing that everybody is seeking for in their Christian journey is what we're seeking. And we don't want to have to lie. I don't want to have to marry a woman, make her life miserable and expect me going to heaven for that. No. I want to be able to live my life without guilt, you understand me? Without having no, that, to put anyone else That's in very pain. interesting because in the it past, has, you know, once people realize that, you know, they are attracted to the same sex, a lot of people just take the easy way out and like leave the church entirely, you know, saying that, oh, you know what, this is not a community for me. But you are like in there, like really fighting the fight for members of the congregation who are LGBTQ, who want to be Christian, but who are also gay. And I guess, you know, a lot of pastors and and clergy members don't necessarily buy that just yet. But what about your experience in the church? Have you faced cases of discrimination? I know we talked a little bit before the podcast about how your priestly ordination was, you know, postponed and even canceled a, a couple of times. Everywhere you go um, as an individual, um, if you're outspoken on many you will face people that don't agree with you. And if those people happen to be in authority or they have They'll influence on decisions you. that will impact your That's life. That's interesting. Everybody says, everybody on social one. media and, says, and, and, be yourself. But when I, being yourself starts to, you know, become grandiose or, you know, more than you do, say, no, tone it down. Don't don't be yourself, that kind of thing. But sorry to interrupt. I, I just... Uh, I mean, I understand where you're coming from as well. I mean, obviously, I mean, I mean, I have been trained, you know, uh, as, as an Anglican ordinan, you know, for ministry in the Church of England. And um, yes, I got ordained a deacon in 2013. Now, my ordination uh, into the Church of England as a deacon made headlining uh, around the world and most especially in Nigeria. But of course, you know, the issues around my sexuality and my public uh, profile also created a lot of problems for me, you know, in that time, such that, you 
know, um, there was a time that, you know, I had a fallout with the church, you know what I mean? So I decided to take a break. Now, of course, I resumed my ministry at the end of 2017 and with the expectation that I would be ordained in 2018. It didn't happen. Now, last year, uh, 2019, you know, I was preparing for ordination. But of course, in 2018, I mean, let me tell you one thing, right? I'm very, very open with my life and I'm very transparent. In 2018, I was invited as a guest, Gay Pride in London. So I was one of the speakers. You know, I spoke on the stage. It was a live program, a live broadcast. So I spoke. And honestly speaking, I was also wearing my clerical collar because I'm very proud of my work as a minister. So I was saying to the crowd, thousands of gay people, you know, me, that God loves them. And I used the acronym GAY, G-A-Y, mm. to say that God adores God as especially for those that are struggling. And my single message is that as a Christian, as an Anglican, it will be important that people return to church. It will be important that the church is prepared. There is a readiness by the church to welcome those who have been excommunicated or those who have fled, those who have left the church, to welcome them back to the church. Let me tell you one thing that I know for sure about the Anglican Church in England. The Anglican Church in England is working very hard to become an English church. There are, there are sections of the church that will always remain conservative, and that's okay. Do you understand me? Even as a family, you have people that don't agree with each other, but when it comes to dinner time, everybody will be around the table to have dinner. That is the way it's so. I don't believe that, you know, um, my journey with the Church of England is necessarily going to be the only awakening. I've only been in leadership in the Anglican Church in the last 10 years. There are people that have done the same thing and more in the last 40 years, 30 years, and so on. So I am relatively a newcomer. There are other people that are also in different areas of activism within the church for equality uh, of same-sex relationship, even right down to same-sex what, marriage. What, are, what are some of the so, let me most put it to you, obvious I, ways that you say the church are, are, are trying to be inclusive? Like, what are some of the most obvious ways? Have they kind of like an, acknowledged that? Let's begin, let's begin with the fact that the Church of England will ordain a gay and they have. priest. Yes, mm. you understand know I me? Mean? They have. There are so many of us. There are so many gay and lesbian, even transgender people that are priests in the Church of England. But of course, you know, the Church of England also have their own guidelines around human sexuality. I mean, one of the things that we know that is painful um, for uh, gay priests who are in relationship, you know, Sammy, with their partners is that the church has laws that says that you cannot have sexual relationships. And because gay and lesbian clergy cannot marry in the church, it means that they still they have to remain celibate. So people like myself who are in relationship must remain celibate. And that is what we have signed up for for now. So the, 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 the battle then continues to the church accepting that we can get married. Not only just marry, we can get married in church. The reality is that I can get married to my partner as a person. I will go to the registry in my local area, get married to my partner, but then I will have fallen foul of the rules of the church. But I strongly believe that the effort is still being made because of people like myself, because of those who have gone before me. There are clergy that have been fighting this fight for 40, 30, 40 years in the church. Before I arrived, I told you the person who introduced me to the Anglican church in 1997. That was a long time ago. 
right? They have been fighting these battles decades before I arrived. So I think that my arrival is a contribution. It doesn't take away the fact that they have done this struggle for so long. But then the reality is that there are clergy in the church. I mean, there are two clergy in the Church of England that actually got married. And unfortunately, one of them had to be fired. The second one resigned. Wow. Like, I, I can only imagine, like, you, what, you know, like you said, you know, there have been a lot of people fighting this fight. And obviously, there must, be, there must have been a lot of, like, roadblocks in the way. But, like, even with all your struggles in the church, I can imagine, because uh, besides being, like, a clergy in the church and fighting the LGBT fight uh, within the Christian community. Like you're also a black man. So I can imagine you have struggles outside the church as well, like in the larger society, like imagine you fighting the, the LGBT fight and coming out and we still have the whole issue of police versus black people, uh, you know, discrimination against foreigners, things like that. Well, I mean, I think, I think if we just hold on uh, about the, the race issue within the church, um, it is also very true that the, the Church of England, particularly still struggles around the issue of race. So for me, there, there are issues around that. And I think that the reality for many Black people in the church, especially clergy, is that they also face with race, racial discrimi discrimination. So I have faced racial discrimination in the church uh, by church members, by clergy members, by other people in the church. I have face xenophobia in the church. But to be quite honest, I mean, it, it, it is not an end all be all. It also means that we become very aware of all of this. And I am not shy that I will talk about this in my sermons. I will talk about it in the parish council. You understand me? I will address those issues. Whenever there is justice or discrimination, I will address, you understand me? I mean, I have addressed it with some of my superiors. They did not act on it. But I think that there, a time will come where, you know, the church will be completely embarrassed that they are racist, they are homophobic, and they need to do something about it, you know? I don't think that this is a battle for just one person or just one. I think we need to look at all of the ism that is bringing the church down. The same Church of England, you know, at one time would not ordain women. I mean, they are doing fine at the moment because there are more women that are ordained as clergy in the Church of England. I mean, when with Nigeria, the, the Anglican Church of Nigeria even have the conversation towards ordaining women, let alone ordain women. So you can see. And there are so many other issues as well. If I were to go back to Nigeria, you know, are there also issues of tribalism in our church, in our society? You know, you know let, let's, let's also remember that the church is a reflection of our society. So, I mean, you don't come to church and suddenly not be part of the society, you know. If you come to church as a black man, when you leave church, you will still be a black man. If you come to church as a medical doctor, when you leave the church, you're still a medical doctor, and so on and so forth. So I, I strongly believe that, you know, there, there's a lot more that we can do um, to make sure that, you know, what we do at church helps the society change. I guarantee if the church is able to do a lot more work to end discrimination of any kind, yeah, I mean, we will I have a better I society. Agree. Yeah, I certainly agree with that, that the church and, you know, all, other, other religious movements have such a huge influence on, you know, outcomes in the society. And if it starts internal, there can be a ripple effect out there. Um, I know you have to leave very soon, but I want to ask you about what you're doing with House of Rainbow. Um, so from what I understand, House of Rainbow uh, started as a church, you founded it, and you're using it as a vehicle to fight for LGBTQ plus rights uh, within Christianity. Can you talk a little bit about that initiative? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, thank you. Also, Rainbow started in Nigeria, and I think I talked about it a little bit. 
as we're having this conversation. And then it started to create by creating safe space for those of us who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender to come together, you know, to worship God. And I think that is, it was also created uh, as a safe space where we can talk about our own issues and have a better understanding of God. Uh, and this started in Nigeria? To our sexuality. It started in Lagos. Weren't you afraid of any reprisal or hate crimes of some sort? I mean, to be quite honest, when we started House of Rainbow in Nigeria, I didn't actually consider all of those things. Um, And we actually started on, we had started about six to seven months late because the same sex, um, the anti-gay bill was introduced in January of 2006, the very year that we started. But um, I wasn't concerned about the repercussions. I wasn't concerned about consequences. But I think that, you know, along the line, two years later, I think we, we learned better. And um, I have no regrets at all. Um, but I think that if I look back in hindsight, maybe there are things that we'll have done differently. One of the things that I didn't want to do for the House of Rainbow community in Nigeria was to make it another secret group because Nigerians don't like secrets. You know, they will call it occultism. I mean, the fact that we're even open bold and transparent was even problematic for many. And I'm glad that we were open. And I'm rejoicing today because a lot of people say that we will not last 14 days, but now we're just about to celebrate 14 years of the organization. What we've done with the organization is that we transitioned uh, the organization into more of a pastoral care uh, uh, place so that we can provide pastoral care, education, Um, House of Rainbow has done a lot of work in about 22 countries. Most of them are in Africa. We have done work by providing education around sexuality and the Bible for religious leaders, for the LGBT community. We've worked with many parents who have LGBT children. We work with communities, um, you know, both Muslim, Christian, several religious communities across Africa and in the Caribbean. And we continue to lend our voice, you know, to the fight for human rights. That is why I go to demonstrations, I take part in petitions and things like that. And of course, currently in House of Rainbow, uh, as an organization in the UK, we also have a very robust um, work for people living with HIV. We do a lot of support work for people seeking asylum uh, in the UK, around Europe, in America. Um, you know, as long as you're outside of your country of origin, you know, we will be able to provide some level of support for you uh, through the work that we do. Um, we're working uh, with the anti-slavery uh, projects, you know, because people get trafficked. Yeah, it's a big one. So, and, and I think that to be quite honest, I mean, when I think about all the work that we've been doing in the last 40 years, I believe that God has called me and my ministry and the work that we do as a rainbow in order to save lives. I mean, I mean, if we to take testimonials of LGBT people that have never met me, that have never been to House of Rainbow, but they have seen our work on social media, there is a lot of graph that such an organization exists and such boldness and courage, you know, is there as well. I mean, I do not take it for granted, nor do I take it lightly. And I and I wanna I continue to trust God because I believe that God is calling me. And that is why I'm saying, God, send me, send me. And, and it's not easy. Um, I've paid a lot of price, uh, tough ones as well. I, I've paid uh, a serious prices with my relationship with my father, uh, with members of my family that wouldn't talk to me, that wouldn't interact with me. But that's okay, uh, because I believe that with God, I'm able to create 
family of choice. With my ministry, I'm able you know, to have relationship with a lot of people. And I'm very grateful for that. And I don't got take it, this for granted at all. Let me ask you this. So, you know, touching, being that we're both Nigerian, and I hate to keep bringing this back, like there are a lot of people, like we both have certain a certain level of privilege. I mean, you were born in the UK, we're currently outside Nigeria. Like, even though there, there's still a huge issue of classism in Nigeria, so there are a lot of let me say, rich people and powerful people in Nigeria who have been rumored to be gay. Some are open, some are being rumored to be gay, but the way people approach them on topics around LGBT is quite different because they have a lot of influence, they have a lot of money. Not everyone kind of like has that privilege. There might be someone, you know, somewhere in northern, eastern, southern Nigeria that doesn't come from a family of means or doesn't have access to these opportunities, but that doesn't change his or her sexual orientation. And you find that the society might be harsher on people like that. Have you have you found that there's some hypocrisy when people are dealing with people who might be gay on a certain class and people who might be gay like on a on a lower class, that kind of thing? Well, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't think that we should be looking at the, the class or elitism around sexuality. Um, I think that for me, I think I would just center this around privilege. Um, the, the son of a politician or the daughter of uh, of a millionaire who is gay or lesbian would not be troubled in the country if their parents are cool with them being gay or lesbian. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it boils down to the working class and the poor community uh, where people just want to live their lives. And I think that for me, my message would be that those of us, including myself, that are privileged um, and are LGBT people in Nigeria or anywhere else, uh, we need to use our privileges to help others. And that is what I would say. And, and I've always said this, that, you know, uh, with visibility comes responsibilities as well. You know, um, I am visible as a gay man. I live in England. So those are privileges that I have. And also I'm mindful that my being open about my sexuality and causes me to have some responsibility for others. And that is why I do the work that I do. That is why I extend the hand of solidarity and support to people. I sacrifice a lot, particularly over the last 14 years that I started House of Rainbow. I have made personal sacrifice in order to advance the course of human sexuality uh, in Nigeria and abroad. Uh, to me, it's an honor. And I don't take that for granted. So I don't think that, you know, people in uh, middle class or upper class societies anywhere, and, and particularly, especially in Nigeria, who are gay, should flaunt it or, or use it in a way that would demean Got it, got it. Well, um, you know, I really want to appreciate you for coming on the podcast. Obviously, listeners listening to, to this interview would know that I'm trying my best to come from a place of curiosity. I mean, I don't have it. I don't have all the knowledge at my fingertip. Uh, you are, you know, well versed in this. You've been doing this for a long time. You are trained in theology. So you, you know that aspect as well. But hopefully through our conversations, our listeners have been able to gain some insights and, you know, 
Uh, we'll be keeping tabs with you any way we can use our little platform to support whatever it is you're doing to provide a more inclusive, you know, community. And like I said, you know, culture class, we interact with people from different backgrounds. Not everyone, the whole world is not a monolith. So even though we're both Nigerians, we have different experiences, you know, we have the struggles, that kind of thing. There's always room for coming together, having a civil discourse and trying to make the world more tolerable and building those bridges between, you know, people from different backgrounds. Um, is there a last thing uh, you want to say before we end the episode? Do you want to like drop your social media handles if people want to know more about you? Is there a project you're working on that you want to publicize, that kind of thing? Well, I mean, except to say that, you know, House of Rainbow will turn um, 14 years uh, on the second, well, we're celebrating on the second to the fourth of September. So uh, if the podcast is published by then, then that can go out. If not, then that's okay. Um, the, the social media handle, uh, House of Rainbow on Twitter, House of Rainbow on Facebook, and House of Rainbow on Instagram. Yeah, thank you so much, Reverend GA, for coming on the podcast. You guys can follow Cultural Class Podcast everywhere as well. Check out our website, culturalclasspodcast.com, and follow us on all social media. Send us an email, uh, culturalclasspodcast at gmail.com if you want to be put in touch with our guest or any of our previous guests, and we'll be sure to connect you with their permission. All right, guys, till next time. Have a good day.